0: continuing our series called How God Shapes a Person for Impact. And we've been saying that often we look at our heroes and we assume they come born ready for the task. And in doing so, we miss out on all of the factors that are involved in often shaping a person for uh, the task that they will eventually accomplish and for the person that they will uh, eventually become. And so what we've been doing is we've been going back to uh, Moses' life before Pharaoh, before the showdowns that uh, we are so apt to to associate with his life, and seeing some of those uh, shaping factors and influences in his life. Uh, Today we are looking at uh, Moses' first attempts to be a deliverer, and uh, how you need more than good intentions to make a difference, that God has to do something in your life first uh, before uh, you can uh, be that person that you might aspire to be. Now, I don't know if any of you have any New Year's traditions. Uh, when we were in Japan, the most common, famous uh, New Year's tradition, particularly on January 2nd and 3rd, uh, was something called the Ekiden. It was a uh, 200-kilometer relay race, 10 runners uh, that would each take their their turn uh, doing this uh, famous race from uh, Tokyo to Mount Fuji and back. And uh, it was something that everybody's eyes were glued to every year. Uh, the person who started it was a man by the name of Shizu, Shizu Kanakuri, and he's been called the father of, of marathon in Japan. Uh, he was one of just two athletes that were chosen to uh, represent Japan at the 1912 Stockholm Olympics, uh, Japan had never participated before. First time that they were sending uh, someone, but with uh, Kanakuri and uh, this other athlete, their hopes were extremely high. Uh, in the pre, uh, in the qualifying uh, rounds for uh, this particular uh, uh, event. He set a marathon. He was reported to have set a marathon world record, two hours, 33 minutes, and 30 seconds, which in 1912, that was a big deal. There was a nationwide fundraiser to to get the money together to actually send him there because uh, the government wasn't able to come up with the money. This had to be a grassroots effort. And it was really a national celebration. And everybody thought, this is a, a sure thing. He's already just clocked a world record. We're sending him off. He'll be on the world stage, and he'll bring home gold. Unfortunately, the 18-day trip from Tokyo to Stockholm took its toll on his body. Uh, it, he needed five days to recover just from that trip, traveling first by ship uh, and then uh, across the trans. Uh, uh, uh Siberian uh, highway uh, by uh, by train from Russia to Scandinavia he arrives in Stockholm completely worn out and exhausted takes 5 days to recover then the olympic coach they only had one coach for the two athletes and he was tasked with preparing them for uh their respective events he came down with tuberculosis then, uh, uh, adding to the the, the woes, uh, Kanakuti, first time out of Japan, he's struggling with the local food. He wants his miso soup and rice and fish, and he's not finding it in Stockholm at the time. And what makes it worse, he's trying to sleep at night, and would the does would the sky ever get dark? The the, the midnight sun was interrupting with his sleep schedule, and. Uh, really, really struggled. Well, he gets uh, to uh, race day, and partway through the 46-kilometer race, he collapses, passes out. Uh, a local Swedish family cares for him, brings him uh, to, to care for him. They bring them to, to their home and uh, provide him uh, help and uh, restore him. But he feels completely humiliated. He had the hopes of an entire nation on his shoulders. He thought this was going to be it. And so he didn't even return to report to race officials um, what had happened. He just disappeared. And so for over 50 years, uh, Swedish authorities assumed he was just missing somewhere in Japan had no idea uh, where he had gotten to, no idea what had happened to him until they discovered that he had, of course, taken a, uh, a trip, gotten, gotten his way back to Japan and was safely living with his family. He had gone on to be a father and a grandfather. And it wasn't until 1967 that Swedish authorities found out what had happened to him. A Swedish television program invited him to return to, to Stockholm and to finish the race. Uh, When he did, he accepted their offer, he finished it. They announced his time, 54 years, eight months, six days, five hours, 32 minutes, and 20.3 seconds. He was done his race. I think of his race for gold, and I wonder whether any of you feel like you are in a similar detour in your life. I kind of set off to go in this direction, and either it's taken a lot longer than I was expecting, or I don't know what's going on. I don't know what I find myself in. I think we go through those circumstances and experiences in our lives, and we try and make sense of them. Maybe you're someone who would say, I'm trying to do something good. Good. And I don't know why God doesn't help me more. I don't know why God doesn't make it easier. Doesn't he want me to do this? And, and, and we can find ourselves on these detours of life or on these roads that we are assuming would have been a sure thing. It would have been easier. It would have just been with fewer obstacles and difficulties along the way, or at least if they were there, surely God would just allow us to sail over them, and we find ourselves in these situations, and God hasn't done that, and we're not sure why. And it can affect how we think about God, how we think about ourselves, how we think about our lives. Well, today's passage is dealing with just such a person. Uh, We meet someone who is... Uh, who will go on to a 40-year detour in his life. Someone who everybody had, would have had high hopes for, thought this was going to be a sure thing. And he was setting out to do something good. And yet, it was confusing why it wasn't easier. Why it didn't happen according to the timetable and according to expectation. So if those are any of the questions that you have ever been asking, uh, then this passage is for you. If they're not, you probably won't be too long before you will find yourself asking some of those questions. And so if you would turn with me, uh, we're going to look to God's word in Exodus chapter 2 verses 11 to 25 this morning and uh, really try to to make sense of what God is doing in those detours of our lives. Uh, if, you, uh, if you don't have a Bible, uh, the black church Bible's on the little rack in the seat in front of you. It's on page 42. I'm going to begin reading in Exodus chapter 2, verse 11. One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, why did you strike your companion? He answered, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you kill the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian. And he sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home to their father, Ruel, he said, how is it that you've come home so soon today? They said, an Egyptian delivered delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, Then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man. And he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. She gave birth to a son and he called his name Gershom. For he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. During those many days, the king of Egypt died. And the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. This is the word of God. Now, the first principle that we see in this passage is that to make a difference, you need God's wisdom. Just having a good heart and a good intention or even a good education is not necessarily enough to uh, make a real impact to make a difference, you need God's wisdom. Now, when we meet Moses in this passage, he's 40 years old. We've skipped over the entire part from uh, about three years old when he was brought by his mother, uh, returned to uh, the pr- princess of Pharaoh, and uh, returned him to the palace. But So those 37 years have uh, taken place in between. Acts 7.22 gives us a, a picture of what was happening during that time. It says this, Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. Now, just from this little introduction, you see that if you were looking for a deliverer for the Israelites, you couldn't have found a more perfect person than this. He had been, Prepared for this moment. If you look at the Israelites during this time, they were under slavery. They, they barely had the time to think, let alone train up leadership that would be able to one day lead the country and lead them in deliverance. But Moses has been trained and has received the best education. He's not only fluent in Egyptian, he is fluent in the halls of power. He understands the dynamics of uh, of power and how to interact with people, how to speak to people. Despite what he will say later in the book of Exodus, uh, Moses is a gifted speaker. Uh, He is an accomplished individual. He has been trained well, and he has, according to the passage, he has excelled in his training. So he's well-equipped, and he has a, uh, a, 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 an amazing preparation for the calling that he will receive. Now, some people go off into the halls of power. They, they go off into university or a corporate job, and they forget who they are. That's not the case with Moses here. In verse 11, it says, one day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. If you're someone that has the kind of power and status and influence that Moses had at this time, it costs something to care. When you see your people being oppressed, it is a sacrifice to stand with them and to identify with them. And so Moses, as soon as we hear him referring to them as his people and going out to see how uh, they are faring, we all automatically understand Moses is going out prepared to pay a price. He, he has this uh, sense of compassion for uh, his people and he's willing to identify with them. Hebrews 11 says, by faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. That's difficult to do when you've grown up with privilege. When things have come easy to you, when you have tasted the good life, it is very difficult to make the hard choices that will be involved in giving those things up. And yet, that's the difficult uh, choice that Moses was willing to make. Now, in verse 12, he looks around, sees that the coast is clear, and decides to take out this Egyptian taskmaster who is beating on a a fellow Hebrew, another Israelite. It's bold. It takes a lot of courage. Uh, Moses is ready for action. He is someone who is willing to step into the fray. And maybe you're reading this and you're thinking, that's what we need to do. We need more of that spirit. Fight the power. None of this get along to to get along. We need to to have that fighting spirit. And yet what this passage teaches us is that we need something more than that as well. That courage plus stupid is a, a recipe for failure. And so as you begin to see what happens, you realize Uh, just having the right education, just having enough compassion, just being willing to step forward isn't enough. You need to think about how you're going to go about the task. And Moses, for all of his education, for all of his upbringing, hasn't really given adequate thought to that. He hasn't yet been uh, trained in God's ways and in God's wisdom. Here, all of a sudden, our great hopes for a deliverer, he's now become a murderer. And we know that even without reading on further, we know that this can't end well. But I want to pause here to just ask the question, does anyone find yourself identifying with Moses here? Do you relate to where he is at in his life and how he is responding to his circumstances? Have you ever tried to do something good and felt frustrated that God wasn't doing more to to support your cause. Um, Have you ever found yourself in this position where you're thinking, my heart's in the right right place, why doesn't God automatically bless me? Why doesn't he automatically change my circumstances and come through and uh, do what I'm kind of expecting him to do? Are Are you tempted to think that the ends justify the means? Or that the means really don't matter as long as you're on the right side. Those were all the kinds of issues that were going on in Moses' life as he steps out in great courage and in great compassion, but with little wisdom or thought to what he was, how he was going about what he was going to do. I think I felt every one of those things. I, I think I have felt every one of those impulses to just act, to just do it, I just sometimes the struggle is to just to come up with the courage to do something, but not enough uh, 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 wisdom to think about how it should be done, when it should be done, and in what way it should be done. And in those times, you 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 realize that good intentions aren't enough. That how we go about uh, what we do, it will either glorify God or not. And in this case, uh, it is, uh, it, it is that, that, that sense of God's name being uh, brought down by uh, how go- Moses goes, goes about what he does. So to make a difference, you need God's wisdom. You also need God's motivation. If you're doing the right thing for the wrong motivation, you are going to find yourself running out of steam or uh, things going off of the rails in some other way. To make a difference, you need God's motivation. Some people, they need to do a little bit of charity work to make themselves feel less guilty so they can get on with the rest of their life. That is certainly not Moses. He has a, uh, an, a, a an inner drive that moves him towards compassion, moves him to act. Verse 13 shows him going out the next day. So he's just killed the Egyptian taskmaster for what he has done. The next day, he's already going out to see, what other wrong might I be able to right today? As he does, this time he comes across not another Egyptian slave driver. He finds two Israelites who are in a conflict, and one is clearly oppressing the other. Uh, If you have been on the receiving end of abuse for a long period of time, uh, often... Uh, people who are abused become abusers. And that's likely what is happening in this in this instance. Now, Moses steps in and he confronts the oppressor. And I know this is a conflict. So maybe it's too much to expect that uh, they are going to step in and feel great uh, uh, feelings of respect and compassion and gratefulness for what Moses had done on just that previous day. But a little gratitude wouldn't be out of of place in such a situation. There there should be some sense of uh, gratefulness for what Moses had done. Instead, one of them delivers an insult and an accusation. In verse 14, the man asks, Who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Now remember, these are the people that Moses has just given up everything for he's laid his life on the line for these people he has given up all of the privileges of the palace and he is going to dedicate his life to rescuing them and we get a an early introduction to what that that calling is going to be like what it was going what is going to be like to try to help people who don't seem all that eager to be helped who are not going to demonstrate the, uh, the, the, any, any gratefulness towards him. If that's a response he's going to get from the Israelites, Pharaoh certainly isn't handing out any good citizen awards either. And verse 15 tells us he's not only heard about what Moses did, but he's put a hit out on him. He is determined to kill him. And Moses realizes his only hope is to flee, to get out, and to uh, be uh, out of that situation. He heads to the dry wilderness of Midian. Now, the Midianites were uh, related to the Israelites. Uh, The the Midianites were descended from the second wife of Moses, a, a woman by the name of Keturah, and so they are uh, they are literally the brothers of another mother they, this is this is they they're both descended from Abraham, but from two different mothers, uh, the Israelites and the Midianites they They had uh, they had much common they, there was much that they had in common, but they would often at different points find themselves uh, in conflict with one another. Now Moses sits down from a well. He's exhausted from his escape. He's feeling a little beat up by having tried to do what's right and things didn't go uh, according to plan. And as he does, the seven daughters of this Midianite priest come to a well and they are trying to feed their flocks. And as they're trying to feed their flocks, uh, some shepherds come and start bullying them, push them out of the way, take over the well And they are going to uh, get the water first. Now, put yourself in Moses' situation. We've just had two straight days of conflicts gone wild. He has jumped into the fray. He has tried to help out. He's, He's actually murdered someone in the process. And the other one, things kind of blew up in his face. But if there was ever a conflict that you could forgive someone from just sitting out on, this would be the one. Moses... You've done enough. You don't need to do any more. Surely you can just sit, watch the spectacle, enjoy a little bit of drama maybe, and go on with your day. But that's not Moses. He jumps into the situation. He is determined once again to try and resolve uh, this conflict. In verse 17, he not only stands up to the shepherds, rescues the Midianite women, But then it says he waters their flocks. He decides to take on the job. Again, he's a fleeing fugitive here. Uh, He decides to take on the job of helping them water their flocks. And apparently he does such an efficient job of it that they return home earlier than usual, despite all the stuff that's gone on. So he has knocked himself out for this. And to get a sense of the response, just listen to how the father of these seven women uh, responds to what's happened. It, it, the, the, reaction, the actual reaction comes in verse 20. I'll, I'll paraphrase it. He's like, you're trying to tell me that you're being bullied by some shepherds. And this, this strong, capable guy, well-educated, well-dressed comes in. He chases off the other shepherds. Then, without being asked, he stoops to water your flocks for you. And you're telling me that you left him at the well? Do you realize how difficult it is for me to marry off seven daughters? And you were like, what on earth are you doing? What are you thinking? And you get a sense, yeah, once again, Moses is trying to do good and hasn't gotten any thanks for it. He's been left sitting at the well, didn't get a thank you note, there was no email, there was no gift card. He just, he's not getting any appreciation for the work that he did. And it's in those times that I think we find ourselves asking, why am I doing what I'm doing? What's my motivation? And I wonder whether that's a question that you have been asking in your own life these days. Maybe it's, maybe it's uh, come through the parenting process. Maybe it's, uh, maybe it's situations at work. Maybe it's serving. Um, what, it, what is it that keeps you going, that motivates what you do? If you're serving to feel better about yourself, that gets old really easily. If you were doing what you do in order for people to to think well of you or to to express their gratefulness to you, sooner or later you'll find there just isn't enough gratefulness to keep it going. It just isn't enough. Maybe you're doing it because you feel compassion for the people. And I I think that was a big part of it for Moses. But then you do ministry to people and you think, I feel compassion for them. I want to help them, but they don't seem to want my help. It's hard. And, and sometimes they're not as lovable as I thought they were going to be. I, I thought that I would be celebrated for the work that I'm doing, and it just doesn't feel like that. And it's in those times that you ask yourself, so what is it? What is the motivation? Because if I don't find something else, I don't know if I can continue on. God will teach Moses what we all need to learn. That motivation for anything of significance will ultimately have to come from God himself. He is the only one who is worthy of the sacrifice and commitments that are required to do something of eternal significance. He's the only one worthy of the effort. He's the only one whose reward really matters. He's the only one whose whose acceptance and appreciation is uh, enough to to drive us to continue on when it's hard, when there's obstacles come. And I wonder whether you've learned that lesson. The Apostle Paul, as thanks for his ministry, was usually stoned by rock, was was pelted by rocks by the, the crowd. He was imprisoned for the work that he did. He was rejected as he sought to bring help and freedom and some of the deliverance that we've been singing about in these songs this morning. But he kept going because he found his motivation somewhere else. In 2 Corinthians 5.14, it says this, the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded that one has died for all, therefore all have died. He found his motivation in the love of Christ for him. If Jesus could give up his life for me, surely I could give up something for someone else. If, if he has sacrificed for me, I can sacrifice for others. And, and so that motivation keeps going back to what Christ has already done for us. He's the one who gives us the fuel to go on. So to make a difference, you need God's wisdom you need God's uh, God's motivation. And finally, you need God's humbling. And I wish we didn't need this one. I, I wish that, that we could just kind of skip over this and get a little bit of wisdom, uh, get a little bit of motivation, and just that would be it. But it doesn't seem to be it. The fact is, you and I tend to think too much of ourselves and too little of God to do things of Eternal significance. And so we need that humbling in our lives to, to understand, no, I need to think less of myself and I need to think more of him. It really is about what God and what God alone can accomplish as I submit myself to him. To make a difference, you need God's humbling. Now, when Moses is greeted by Ruel, who is later called Jethro, uh, a man who becomes his father-in-law, we're happy for him. It's the first time in the story that he has experienced someone who seems genuinely happy to see him, grateful for his, his contribution. Um, he, he's, he's the first person in the story who's expressed gratefulness. And so we, 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 we look at this, and it feels just right. At verse 21 says, Moses was content to dwell with a man, and he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. And we're tempted to see this as the happily ever after. But this is no fairy tale. In fact, uh, we, we, we look at the situation and, and those, that phrase, he was content to dwell with him, takes on a d- different significance. Remember, this is the man who has spent the last 37 years in the lap of luxury, uh, in the halls of power, in the seat of, uh, of the palace, in the richest and most powerful nation uh, in, uh, in that part of the world, in that day. And so it, for him now to find himself in the wilderness, in Midian, is a great demotion, is a huge step down. The only reason he was willing to give up all of that was out of compassion for his people. But his people have rejected him. And he's he's an exile even from his own people. The icing on the cake is his work. Exodus 3.1 tells us that Moses kept his father's flocks. But Moses has been raised Egyptian. And we learn uh, in, in Genesis that that. Sheep herding was the most despised profession among all Egyptians. It was just like the lowest low job you could possibly have. And if you were doing that, you were seen as just like, like the dregs of society. If, if, if nobody else will do it, that's the kind of job that you can take. That's where, that's where Moses is. And he has this job for 40 long years. You get a feel for how Moses felt during this time from the uh, the name that he gives to his first uh, his firstborn son. He names him Gershom, which uh, sounds like uh, the the two Hebrew words uh, "an exile there." I, I, I'm a stranger in that place. I he, he is someone who feels isolated, out of place, unfamiliar surroundings, all alone, and. You can't help but look at those circumstances and you wonder, what's going on there? And as you do, it becomes clear that this is all part of God's plan. He is, he is deliberately humbling him to teach him and to show him that of, for all of, his, all of his qualifications, for all that he's got going for him, it's not enough. He needs the Lord and he will need to depend upon the Lord. He'll need to trust him. He'll need to pray to him. He'll need to rely upon him. He'll need to find uh, in his word, uh, his ways, his his principles, his uh, direction. And it's all of those things that we learn in the wilderness. Now, when we're being humbled in the wilderness, it can feel like God has abandoned us. It would be very easy for Moses to feel that, that he had just been forgotten by God. For like 40 years. And he's a shepherd. And, and Exodus 3.1 tells us he wasn't even shepherding his own flocks. He doesn't even have his own sheep. He's doing it for someone else. He's a hired hand in the lowest profession uh, going in that, in that, uh, in that region. Well, if he thought he was forgotten by the Lord, we're reminded that God is silently working through all of this. In verse 23, it mentions that Pharaoh died, and that means change of government, means amnesty for Moses, and a change in the potential for his fortunes. Uh, But the Israelites had begun to call out to the Lord. And the chapter ends with these words. And God heard their groaning, And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. The message is God hears your prayers. He hears us. Now, we may not be listening to him. That may be part of the things, one of the lessons that we're learning in the wilderness. God hears us, but we might not be listening to him. Then the message is that God sees your groaning. He understands what is happening. He genuinely has his eyes on you. He sees you. And we're to hear that message. But like Moses, we probably can't see what he's doing. He sees us, but we probably can't see him. It's not clear what he is up to. We're in the wilderness. It feels like we've been abandoned, but he's at work. Just, it's hard because we don't see it. And then it says, God knows. God knows what you're going through. God knows you and your, your pain, your frustration, your disappointments, and your joys. But in those times in the winder- wilderness, we are often forced to ask, how well do I really know God? How well do I know him? How well have I tried to know him and grown close to him? And so we're we're given these uh, these little hints of what God is up to. When you're in the wilderness, maybe God is using the time to teach you and strengthen you. Uh, Maybe he's trying to help you to find your motivation in him. Trying to to convince you how much you need him. Because our our tendency is to think, We just need to bring God in as a pinch hitter when things, all of our other plans fail. We're seldom quick to put him first, to to put all our hopes on him, to trust his ways and his word, to, to act like he's all that really matters. And it's in those times in the wilderness that God teaches those things. I wish there was a different path. But the more I look at scripture and the more I look back on my own life, I'm convinced that there isn't there. There isn't a shortcut. There's seldom a a quick path through that, that wilderness that always feels like a detour. Jesus didn't leave the comforts of the palace. He left the glory of heaven. He gave up so much more. The one who created the trees had to work as a carpenter uh, he had to uh, had to serve in a profession that you know, given his qualifications, he was grossly overqualified and and yet uh, the, the scriptures say he learned obedience through what he suffered jesus didn't spend forty years in Midian, but he fasted forty days in the de- desert. He faced the trials. He faced those difficulties. He went through all of that. And John's gospel says that he came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. He came to bring hope and to bring relief. He came to bring rescue. And more often than not, the response he got was, no, thank you. And often the response was far more, Aggressive, than no thank you. He knew the rejection of those he came to save, but he kept loving them anyway. Kept serving them anyway, because he had his eyes on the Father, not on lesser motivations. He died on the cross in our place as a substitute for our sins. And because of that, it can say, to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And so as we look at this passage and this account of people whom they wanted to rescue, Moses wanted to rescue, but they weren't ready to be rescued. I think we all need to ask ourselves the question, have I really received Jesus as this verse that speaks of? Have I really invited him to do what only he can do? Have you let him work in your life, in his way and in his time? Or like those Israelites to Moses, are you saying, I I think I can handle this. I don't think I want you to get that close. I don't think I want you to meddle in my life. I think I can handle this my way. Um, if, If I get stuck, I'll let you know. And and, and and that's really the, the, the challenge that we have. Let Jesus do his work in you. Receive him. Trust him. Invite him in. That we might be transformed by his grace. That we would see that he is the one who deserves to be exalted in our lives. Let's look to him now in prayer. Oh, Father in heaven. We thank you for the encouragement that you, you hear, you see, and you know. Forgive us for the times when we, we don't believe that. Help us in those times when we forget that. Help us to listen to you instead of going ahead with our own ideas. Help us to find our motivation in you. To reflect on your love and act in response to your sacrifice. And give us a grace to wait. Give us grace for the humbling. Show your power in our weakness. And give us hearts to receive you. For we ask you in Jesus' name.